My name is Jillian, and I will be reading the scripture today. So, if you like to turn your Bibles to Psalm 30, that is where we will be starting. A Psalm of David, a song for the dedication of the temple. I will exalt you, Lord, for you rescued me. You refused to let my enemies triumph over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you restored my health. You brought me up from the grave, O oh Lord. You kept me from falling into the pit of death. Sing to the Lord, all you godly ones. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. When I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. Your favor, O oh Lord, made me as secure as the mountain. Then you turned away from me, and I was shattered. I cried out to you, O oh Lord. I begged the Lord for mercy, saying, what will you gain if I die? If I sink into the grave, can my dust praise you? Can it tell of your faithfulness? Hear me, Lord, and have mercy on me. Help me, O oh Lord. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent, O oh Lord my God. I will give thanks forever. And now, if you want to turn, you're turning to Acts 9, and I am going to be reading verses 1 to 31. Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. 
He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is indeed the son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gates so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot, so during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. Let's just turn to God in prayer before we head into the message. Father God, we've come in worship and adoration of who you are and all that you've done. And we're well aware that we miss the mark in many ways in life, that we are far from perfect, but by your grace, you choose to work in us and through us, and we thank you for that privilege. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to the words of your scripture, to your message, Lord, and may you just nurture in us what your spirit wants of us. Help draw us closer to you and empower us for your ministry, we pray. Amen. Now, as we start out, just a reminder, if you have questions or thoughts from the message, you can always send me a text at 306-992-2611. You can email the church. You can fill out a card put in the donation box. We'd just love to hear your thoughts. What did God say to you in this? What challenged you? What are you questioning? We'd love to have feedback from you on this. And then tomorrow night, um, I'll be online at 7 o'clock just responding to your thoughts and questions as well, and maybe throwing in an extra thought or two as well from the message, so... One of my favorite memories as a family was a trip that my family just got back from seven years ago. And uh, Facebook has got this wonderful memories feature where you can see uh, pictures from the past years on Facebook. And I'm enjoying watching some of our memories come up from that trip. And uh, what we did is we took a month and we went away for all of February into March, I believe, a bit. And uh, we went to Florida. This was a once-in-a-lifetime trip for our family. And it's one of the advantages of being a homeschool family with all our kids at that point. It was our last year of homeschooling our oldest. And the nice thing is we could do it anywhere. And so 
we went away for a month as a family just to be family and enjoy life and explore the world a bit. And we did a lot of the normal touristy stuff in Florida. Like, we, we of course, did Disney World. And I met more princesses than I ever need to because I've got four wonderful ones in my life already. Yeah, hopefully I get some brownie points for that one. Um, but one of my favorite memories was all the smaller things that you never really hear about that we did. We went and picked our own oranges at the Orange Grove. That was really cool. Or we went to a small uh, tortoise uh, rehabilitation center, and my daughter looked up when I said tortoise because she grew to love tortoises and turtles in Florida, and we've never heard the end of them, and she keeps asking us like every month, can I get a tortoise now? Can I get a tortoise now? Can I get a tortoise now? Wow. We don't have a tortoise yet. <laughs> but one of my favorite spots on the trip, for me personally, was a street painting festival in Florida. I would love for Regina to do this sometime. I love the incredible art painted on the streets. And uh, here's one of the pictures um, while it was being drawn. And that's of some girls uh, skipping. Now, in case you don't know, uh, those girls are actually the chalk drawing. So if you couldn't tell them apart because you're too far away, um, that's how good the chalk drawings were. And they're going to draw uh, uh, different things around on the ground and all that sort of stuff. is really neat. And uh, one of the things that I like about these chalk drawings is the incredible perspective that they have. So, for instance, uh, you better watch out for flash floods in the street, like that. And it actually looks pretty realistic when you're there. Or who thought you would see a whale coming through the street in downtown Fort Lauderdale? And thankfully, they got a barricade to keep people from falling into the water. So street art has become a favorite art form for me to see. And so I keep my eye out for street art by others now. And uh, if you think the street will need uh, rehabilitation um, after having a whale in it, uh, well, what about this? Maybe we should do that on the streets in the winter in Regina. They might slow down traffic a little bit. Or uh, how about how bad potholes can be? Or maybe we want something warmer. Let's go to something a bit warmer. Let's do the next one. Like, isn't that incredible, how real it is? So that's kind of one of the things that I've grown to really love. Uh, and when you're there, you have to change your perspective to see this. You know it's a flat sidewalk or a flat road when you're looking at this. And then you walk up and you stop. And it's like, whoa, is this safe? right? So your perspective has to shift. And changing our perspective usually takes something significant and impactful in life beyond street art. You see, we like to hold on to what we know. We like certainty. And in Acts 9, we begin to really engage with the character of Paul, who at this point is known by the name Saul. He tends, from what we know, he has these two names, Paul and Saul. Um, but at this point, they're referring to him as Saul. And please forgive me if I slip up and I say Paul instead of Saul during the sermon. Uh, as I was writing out my notes, I, had a kept going, I kept going back to correct the P to an S. Uh, my guilt on that. So. so we met Saul at the end of Acts 7 and the beginning of Acts 8. 
We saw that Saul was seeking to destroy the church in Jerusalem, imprisoning anyone he could. And last week we saw how uh, that expanded beyond Jerusalem. And today we're going to see Saul's journey today as his perspective shifts. It shifts from one who in his self-righteousness is hunting down Christians to an entirely different perspective of Jesus. A perspective so different that in Colossians 1, he would write this about Jesus, the very one that he was persecuting. He writes, Christ is a visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Is that not the ultimate shift in perspective? going from wanting to kill anybody who follows this Jesus to proclaiming this Jesus as being God himself, part of the triune God, a part of creation, part of the, the creator of creation. Let's make sure I get that straight. We're going to explore what happened to Saul this morning and what that means for us as well in his perspective switch. As we look at Acts 9, we're going to see three stages to Paul's shift this morning. So we're going to glean what we can from each stage, and then we're going to take a moment and look at what lessons we can learn from the overall story of Saul uh, that we're exploring this morning from Acts 9. For Saul, what he was doing was meaningful and was purposeful. That's how he approached persecuting followers of Jesus. He thought this is what God would have wanted from him as a good Pharisee. You see, Saul was convicted about Jesus, just not the way we are. Because Jesus died by crucifixion, Saul saw that as meaning that God's curse was upon Jesus. And that was Saul's conviction about Jesus, that Jesus was cursed. So he went after believers of Jesus for their heresy of worshiping someone who had been cursed because he died on a cross. And as he's going around persecuting the church, he seems to run out of targets in Jerusalem and sets his eyes on Damascus, about just over 200 kilometers away, and it had a large Jewish population. And being a legalistic Pharisee, Saul dots his eyes, crosses his T's, and he gets permission from the high priest to bring people back to Jerusalem for punishment. And this allows him to legally do that within the Roman Empire. So Saul's on the way to Damascus to continue his murderous rampage to try and destroy the church. And he's doing this with this group of followers who are helping him and cheering him on. And when he's almost at Damascus, everything changes. His life is turned upside down. Now, I want to just take a quick side note here, because uh, I think it just helps us out to understand a bit of Luke's sense of humor in writing. 
whenever you hear the word road in this passage, Luke is having a little fun on a play with words here. He refers to the followers of Jesus as being the way. Okay, have you heard that before? That they were, the early Christians were called the way. And Saul was persecuting the way. And every time you hear the word road, that's actually the same word that is used for the way. It's the way, the road. So this ties in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who joins the way while on the road or on the way. Now Saul's on the way to Damascus, persecuting the way. You see kind of how Luke's having fun with the words here a little bit? Which kind of seems strange to be making light when you're talking about persecution and believers being killed, but it's to make a point eventually. And as he travels, Saul encounters Jesus. We should be more precise here. Saul encounters the living Jesus. Not a vision, not a dream, but he experiences this incredible light around him and a voice speaking to him. And we know it's not a dream or a vision because those traveling with Saul are left speechless hearing the sounds as well. Though we're told elsewhere that they don't understand what is said. But they know something significant is happening. And Saul falls to the ground and Jesus speaks. Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asks back, who are you, Lord? Now, that word Lord is important. That word Lord is the same word that's used in replacing the word Yahweh because people wouldn't say the name of God, so they said Lord instead. Okay? So he is accrediting the voice he's hearing to the divine. And Jesus' response is, I am Jesus. Now, a while ago, we did a series on the I am statements, right? In John? This would be an I am statement in Acts. I am Jesus. For Saul, this would upend all theology for him. This is either blasphemy of the worst kind or God's truth. That phrase, I am for Saul, would clearly be Jesus claiming the name of God for himself. His entire worldview of Jesus to this point was meaningless and wrong. And he's just discovered Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is divine. And for Saul, this is not a vision. It's a post-resurrection experience with Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead. Yet here, Jesus is speaking to him. Jesus is speaking to Saul. And this is rewriting Saul's theology on the fly. And God said yes to Jesus when the world said no to him and tried to kill him. God accepted Jesus, the one who should have been cursed by hanging on the cross, but wasn't because he was without sin. And God had accepted Jesus, and Paul had rejected him and tried to kill his followers. It said no to Jesus, thinking it was cursed. Yet here it's now clear to Saul, God did not reject Jesus, but the exact opposite. God, in this, in this encounter with Saul, not only points out the truth, 
but accepts Saul where he's at. And there's an incredible grace in this that's present. Even though Saul persecuted the Lord and his disciples, even though he tried to wipe out the followers of Jesus, God encounters Saul personally. This is the starting place for Paul encountering God's grace. And it would be something that would be built up in him. And coming to faith is not a quick agreement to something. It's a submission of your life to God. It's not just saying a simple prayer. It's saying, God, I give my life to you. I yield it to you. We've been talking about Jesus as king of our lives in the ADC class and in our services we look at the book of Acts. It means saying, you are the king of my life. I submit myself to you. I, sub- I act in submission of you. And that's what God wants from Saul. And Saul's gone from fierce and fearless to helpless, needing to be guided as he is blinded by this experience. He went from wanting to prosecute the way to not being able to see his own way. Saul has been humbled. He's told to go to the city and await instructions. Which brings us then to the next part of the story. Paul encounters the church. Now that Saul, or Saul encounters the church, there we go, I did it again. Now that Saul is humbled, God can build him back up, can show him the truth, can teach him the truth, because his perspective has been shifted. He's been able to let go of what he was holding on to and be open to something new. And Saul's in the space that the Spirit of God can work in his heart and mind. Now, have you ever wondered what that time going to Damascus was like? Wondering what Jesus wanted with him? Jesus had called him out on persecuting his followers. What did he want with Saul in Damascus? Did he approach the coming time with dread? Here he was in Damascus for three days, blind as can be. Did he wonder if he was awaiting judgment? Was he waiting to be struck down by the followers? You know what? We only know one thing that Paul did during that time. He prayed. His attention isn't necessarily on himself and what's going to happen to him, but it's on God in prayer. It seems those three days were not wasted as Saul needed to have some heartfelt conversations with God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what I'd love to know is, what did God show Saul during those three days? What did God teach Saul? Wow, that'd be incredible to know those exact details, but we see the life transformed that comes out of this. And also during this time, Jesus spoke to a disciple, Ananias, calling on Ananias to go to Saul and heal him from his blindness. And Ananias protests. Saul's reputation precedes him. And, you know, this does not seem like a smart plan. God, 
Sorry, I, I hear you, but in case you're not aware, this man is killing your followers. I love how we do that sometimes. God, just so you know, I, I've got a better understanding of the situation than you, so let me inform you of what's really happening. Anybody else ever do that? I know I've done that many times. God already knows. God knows far more than we do. And here's Ananias. He knows who this person is. He knows the reputation. And Ananias is facing his Jonah moment, isn't he? Will he go where Jesus tells him, even though he doesn't want to? And Jesus clarifies to Ananias and to us his plan. God will use Saul as his chosen witness to the Jews and Gentiles. And then Jesus says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I find that interesting. I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Saul will experience the suffering he himself once inflicted on others. Ananias goes to Saul. Saul is healed and his eyesight is restored. He spends time in Damascus and almost immediately begins preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. People are amazed. And we are told he grows more powerful and proves to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He's gone from a power rooted in his own understanding to being empowered by the Spirit to speak God's truth in the world. And we need to understand there's a difference between having our own power, our own knowledge, and rooting ourselves in the Word of God and proclaiming that truth with grace and love and truth into the world. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul was powerful, but he has also been humbled by Jesus. And in his humility, Saul is called to be Jesus' witness to the world. And in that is empowered by the Spirit, becoming powerful in words and witness. Which brings us to the third part of our passage. Paul goes from encountering the church and meeting with disciples and, and connecting and growing in that sense and, and heeding his call to encountering the world. We see Paul out in the world talking with people, preaching and teaching. He's leading people to faith. He's refuting arguments left, right, and center, establishing his own arguments for why Jesus is the Messiah. And after many days had gone by, we're told, a conspiracy begins among the Jews to kill Saul. Is that not irony? <laughs> the very one who wanted to kill the way is now the one being sought out to be killed. And so Saul escapes with the help of fellow disciples. And he goes to Jerusalem. And again, they're scared of Saul, but Barnabas is a bridge between broken relationships. And he does so with grace and love and understanding. And we need people like that, don't we? To help us bridge broken relationships. And again, Saul starts teaching. And again, he finds himself in danger. And the Greek Jews are trying to kill him. And he's sent eventually to Tarsus. When he gets to Tarsus, we see something interesting happen. The persecution stops. We read that there's a season of peace, and the church is strengthened and encouraged by the Spirit. And it grew in numbers. God not only redeems Saul, 
from a persecutor to being persecuted for him. God uses a season of changing perspective to bring about a halt to the persecution of his believers and brings about a season of peace so the church can grow again anew. So God uses that persecution, redeeming what other people intended for evil for his good, for his benefit, for his kingdom's benefit. For us to see that we need to change our perspective to see the bigger picture from the viewpoint of God and not the world. We can see the evil that people do in the world. Can we see the good that God is doing through that as he redeems it? I don't understand why God allows things to happen sometimes. But I am thankful for how I see God working in the midst of some horrible circumstances to bring about his good for the bigger picture of his kingdom. We don't always hear the stories of God at work because it's not newsworthy in our world. Stories of God's compassion, love, healing, peace, permeating the world in ways where there's huge conflict and evil. Are you watching for that? Are you listening for that? As we wrestle with this story today, I want us to take three things from this for us to wrestle with and consider this morning. First, what are you blind to? What are you blind to? We can get off track in faith. Now, think about Saul. He was a Pharisee. He was an upright religious follower of the Jewish faith. And yet he was so far off track seeking to kill the followers of Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. The scriptures teach us that our faith is offensive to many who do not believe. It is not our job to intentionally be offensive. Okay? That's a very, there's a line there that we need to watch out for. It's not our job to offend people. We don't get to say, oh, well, Scripture says the gospel is offensive. Well, I'm not preaching the gospel if I'm not offending people. That's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It's not our job to bring harm to others. Yes, others will be offended when we do not change our faith to what they wish us to believe. But when we intentionally harm them because they don't believe the same as us, then we've gotten off track. I think it's worthwhile for each of us to reflect and ask, how have we been blind? How have we potentially brought harm to another person that you're in relationship with? To ask the Spirit to see where we've strayed from who we've been called to be. Where have we been a source of hurt, individually and corporately? Where have we been a source of division, of unintentional sin? And like I said, sometimes these things are individually and sometimes they're culturally or corporate. And as we reflect on our days and weeks, and we look at how God has worked in our life, as we look at our hearts and examine our sins, as well as to confess them, we need to examine the relationships we are in and whether they are reflective of who Jesus was 
and how we live out our faith. We need to examine what we believe. This is one of the things I love about the Mennonite brethren. We have a confession of faith. It's not static. That doesn't mean we change what we believe on a regular basis. What it means is the Mennonite brethren in Canada gather regularly to examine our confession of faith piece by piece, a little bit every time, to say, have we misunderstood something? Is there a clarity we can bring to this? There's a desire to make sure that we're not blind to what Scripture is calling us to. As followers of Christ, we need to make sure we're changing our perspective from focusing on protecting ourselves to looking out and loving others first. I could try and spell out what it means for you to be blind, but that's not my place. That's between you and the Spirit. I pray you'll be open to that conversation with the Spirit to see where you are blind. Because I suspect we're all blind somewhere to something. The second question is, where is your truth rooted? Our truth as believers is rooted in the word of God and not in the world or the culture around us. When Saul encountered Jesus, the living word of God, his life was transformed. He came to be a follower of Jesus. He learned about Jesus within the context of the community of faith empowered by the Spirit working in him. But sometimes we have blinders on. We're not always aware how we're ignoring Scripture. We're not aware, like I said before, what our blind spots are. And we need to make sure we're rooting ourselves in Scripture. And we're also discerning that within the community of believers, the community of faith. This is where the church comes in. Saul came to faith in Jesus, was immediately immersed in the community of faith. He was amongst the disciples. Now, some of them were biased against Saul, and Saul had been biased against them, yet together, heeding the words of Jesus to Saul and Ananias and through the working of the Spirit, which would be confirming what Jesus had said, they came to a new perspective on one another. Their truth was rooted in the Word of God. We need to read Scripture reflect on Scripture, not just to affirm what we think, but to question our perspectives in this world, praying the Spirit will illuminate truth, correct our wrongs, and guide us with the Word of God. And we discern that together in community. If you've been here for a while, hearing me preach, I think you've heard that a few times. Faith in God is not a one-man show. We are called to be a part of the body of believers. We need each other. We journey together, we wrestle together, and we each have a part to play in that. And yes, we miss the mark sometimes. And we need to work on that. But when it comes to the Word of God, we discern together as a church, we discern together as a greater denomination. And even beyond that, we're held to Scripture by others beyond our denomination. If we were to stray right off track, other churches might come alongside us and say, what's going on? I've seen that done before in a meaningful way. The 
but we need to make sure we're rooting ourselves in Scripture first and not the ways of the world. Just because something is valuable in the world doesn't mean it's valuable according to God. But we do need to make sure that we're rooted in the Word of God and not our own biases and perspectives. And then the third piece is, where is your humility? When I think about humility, I think about Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And I think that maybe that, that lesson is undervalued for us sometimes. You see, we see Jesus tempted with power and control, and he rebukes that temptation and moves forward in humility and weakness. There's something in this, something to this. It's in that same humility and weakness that Jesus is crucified. He yields the powers of this world and gives them up to take up the power of heaven as God's son. He lays down his life to take it up again and ascend to heaven where he reigns in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. We see in Saul that he had to become weak and humble to have his life transformed. I want to suggest to you that our witness as believers is most effective when done out of weakness and humility instead of power and strength in this world. When we come with arrogance, when we try to put ourselves in a position of power or authority over others, when we deem we are the truth and it's not Jesus that's the truth, we fail to act as God called us to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because you can't. You can't elevate yourself as others and love them as you love yourself because you've put yourself above them. We have to see ourselves as Scripture calls us to, that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. And when we come with that approach, we can then love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we look at Saul and how he sees himself being faithful to God by persecuting followers of Jesus and how sure he was, we need to recognize we can get off track with our faith at times. And we have gotten off track as a larger church, as I'm sure we've each gotten off track in our own lives at times too. Do we have the humility to examine ourselves in that? To admit our brokenness? Our failings. Can you think of times we've done this culturally as a church? Historically? You only need to look at the history of the church globally and in Canada to see how those who proclaim Christ as king sought to usurp Christ with their own authority and power with devastating consequences. We can become so sure of something that we want and that we feel that we don't stop to consider the larger picture that Scripture asks of us. What God asks of us. I want to be clear, anytime we use our faith to justify murder, violence, oppression, genocide, or cultural genocide, or denigrating others, no matter how sinful we see somebody else, no matter what language we use, that is not of God. What's sad is we even have to say that in church. Each of those things has been done in the name of Christ in our world, historically and even more recently. And yes, even in Canada. 
And we need to learn the lesson that we have to come as people of humility. And that's how we approach ministry to the world. That we humble ourselves to be servants of the King. Living for Him, loving as He's called us to love, speaking truth, yes. Living as an act of righteousness in the world, yes. But when we are a people of humility, we are then positioned to love with all that we are. For we know we are sufficient in and of ourselves because of God's grace working in us, transforming us, healing us. And we can love our neighbors as ourselves, for we load ourselves so we're equal with everyone else and not putting ourselves above them, so that only one stands above, and that is Christ who is the head of the church. He is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we need to yield to him. And when we come in that humility and weakness, loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves, our witness is transformed. It was in persecution that God spread out the church beyond Jerusalem. It was in blindness that God called Saul and God used both his situations, both those situations to his glory. Because in our weakness and humility, it's no longer about us. It becomes about God and depending on him. And I hope we're a church that comes to worship in humility, in need of grace, thankful for the grace God has given us, thankful that God is working in us, and recognizing that right along with everyone else in the world, we are in need of that grace. And when we're in that place, I believe our witness is magnified because it becomes less about us and so much more about God and the work of Jesus in the world and the Spirit transforming lives. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, you humbled yourself to the point of death on the cross, sacrificing yourself for our sins. Help us to come in humility and share that truth, to share your humility with others so they can come to know your grace your healing, your transformation and wholeness. Lord, we live in a world that's broken and sinful, a world that does things that you do not value. Help us to be a light, but a light built out of grace and love and modeling your truth and righteousness. Help us to be a, per, a people who are merciful and kind, that seek to bring healing and not hurt. In your name we pray. Amen.